Today we are having a real, raw, and relevant talk on the roots of race in America. Yeah, the other thing that I wanted to, my intention for sharing was to underscore to the brothers and sisters that are listening how Eurocentric much of our scholarship and understanding and beliefs and understanding about the world is. Eurocentric, centric meaning circle, Europe being Europe. So that a Eurocentric view puts Europe at the center of the world and all ideas and understanding and experience flows from European wisdom. That's what a Eurocentric viewpoint does. So it wasn't until like the 70s, earlier than that in my studies, the 70s when you had your black scholars beginning to dig into our history, taking another look at it, not from the perspective of sitting in Europe looking out, but from the perspective of these African civilizations looking out from the motherland. And that's when you got the term Afrocentric arose because we began to get scholarship and historical information outside of the Eurocentric point of view. Very, very important to have an understanding of both of those perspectives and to be able to balance that scholarship. Most of us don't have a, I didn't grow up in an Afrocentric household, so I didn't get a lot of that growing up. I had to seek that out on my own to understand history from an Afrocentric perspective. And those of us who take those steps have a better ability to balance all of the information that we've gotten all of our lives. Those of us who haven't really taken a deep dive into Afrocentric scholarship It's really important to do if you really want to enlarge your sense of history and the world and who you are culturally, particularly if you're African-American. So understanding that a lot of what we take for granted as base knowledge comes from a very Eurocentric perspective. This was a Swedish European man who first categorized and classified human beings according to these four areas. And we've pretty much by and large taken that and run with it 300 years on. I just want to bring that to our consciousness in this conversation. Attention. Mm -hmm. Right. Why do you think it is so difficult to, for many people to celebrate their culture without, mm, I want to say insisting or portraying it as superior to another? Like, what do you think the barrier is to sort of equalizing all of our cultures and celebrating them. Michelle said this once in a different context, but I'm reminded of it again. Michelle mentioned going to Egypt once and being so struck by standing there at one of the temples and looking at these reliefs etched into the stone there and into the walls of these temples and seeing thousands, and we're talking thousands of five, six, 10,000 years ago, these images of war and people fighting each other and treating each other so badly and off with the heads and carrying them back and skinning people. And I mean, just the barbaric nature of the way that human beings have treated each other so badly and so poorly on this planet over time. The older I get, the more sensitive to it I am of just how poorly we treat each other. And it's very difficult to, for many people, to even like themselves, more or less somebody else who looks completely different from them. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that it just, it's hard for people to overcome many times the horrendous and horrific ways that we treat each other. We really do. Many of us treat each other so poorly as human beings. It is sad. And we've done it probably since we've been here. You can go back to Cain and Abel. 
brothers, one brother killing the other. I mean, it just, so there's something in our humanity that is not so good, brothers and sisters. And that's why the ideas, one of, not why, but one of the reasons why understanding the sort of evil, if you will, nature of our humanity, that is why it's in that context that all of these beautiful ideas about God and a higher nature have emerged within humanity over time and have been so sustaining for so many people because we do recognize that left unchecked and left without some higher principles, just like you see, you know, I have uh, here in my home and on my prop, not in my home, but on my property. I was just thinking this morning, I live with a lot of wildlife. I have deer on my property. These are all animals that I see regularly. Deer, I have beaver, I have raccoons, snakes, foxes, all living squirrels, you know, all kinds of birds, um, herons, all on my property. I see these animals all the time. And, you know, you watch how some of these animals treat each other and it is dog eat dog out there in the animal kingdom. I mean, you looking at a squirrel and down comes a hawk and scoops it up and takes it home for dinner. You know, it's vicious. And humanity, Carl Linnaeus was right about this. Humanity has a lot of similarities with the lower animal kingdom. We really can treat each other very poorly. And I just think I'm rambling a bit, but just to say that I think for a lot of people, it gets into your ancestral memory. It gets into your blood, into your marrow, into your thinking. And it really, if you don't consciously try to rise above that lower nature, this is what I'm trying to say. Sometimes you got to talk until you figure out just what the hell you're trying to say. This is what I'm trying to say. If you don't consciously make efforts to rise above that lower nature, and this is the whole journey of the chakras from your lower chakra to your higher chakra, your lower nature will overcome you. It really will. It will subsume you. It will consume you. It will take you down brothers and sisters left unchecked your lower nature, which is in us. This is what Paul talked about in Romans seven. The things I want to do, I don't do. I want to do them, but I don't do them. Who is going to save me from this wretched man that I am? That's what Paul was talking about. There's a lower nature in us. The Bible calls it a sin principle. I don't tend to use those words, but I certainly understand them. There's this lower nature. It's a base animal survival instinct that will off another person. If I think it will help me. Also known as that primal nature. It's very much a primal nature. Thank you. That's exactly what it is. And so left unchecked, that will overcome you in life. I'm giving a long answer to why I think that sometimes we have resistance within from celebrating other people's culture because somewhere in our mind, this matrix has taught us that there's not enough room for all of us, that it's got to be me or you. One of us got to go, but there really isn't enough room at the top for all of us. That's built into our programming. And so we make some choices based upon that programming that this world really isn't abundant enough for all of us. Some of us got to go. You know what I mean? And so when you buy into that, you will begin to treat people very poorly to preserve your own self-interest. That's what I'm trying to say. And it's very difficult to overcome that. I'm not a sociologist or a psychologist, so I don't know the word for this. But as we talk about Eurocentric, seeing the world with Europe as the center and everything emanating from it, and then Afrocentric, seeing the world with Africa as the motherland and everything emanating from that cradle of civilization. And then the Bible speaks about this. Unless you become a little child, you will not see the kingdom of God. So child centric, I'm sure there's a psychological term for child centric, not using the word child, but some other pedagogical (laughs) term for it, but I don't know that term. So I'm just going to say child centered. There's an animating spiritual quality to children. 
that is pure and innocent. There's something about seeing the world as a child sees it. It can be dangerous because children don't know the limits of acceptable behavior and what can get them killed and all of that. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about just looking through the lens of a child and the innocent filter that they put on things. So instead of focusing on color, which is an adult social construct based upon some of the history that we've discussed, there's an innocence there. There's a spiritual quality there that is really important to re-engage, to use one of Michelle's favorite words, as adults. And the whole reason why a lot of these shows that we do is for us adult people to begin to peel back the layers of some of this social programming so that we can get back to that animating, innocent, spiritual quality that we all still inherit, even as adults. It's called the magical child. And we've talked about that archetype here many times in years past. But that is available, that level of purity and innocence, tempered with the wisdom of our age and experience. It is possible to still live in that space. It really is. Race is a social construct that in many ways is based upon some of these findings, these quote-unquote scientific findings that we're talking about. It is a construct. The whole idea of race was put together. And I particularly want to call your attention to it, and this may seem a little uh, prejudicial to some people, but and, and it is. It is it's not prejudicial. It is Eurocentric. Carl Linnaeus was Swedish, and Brother Blumenbach is German. These are European white men that are constructing all of these ideas. The shit has not changed, brothers and sisters. Be clear. Be very clear. Be very clear. It's this core group of white European men that have constructed a system that to this very day continues its work on and on and on in all its nefarious detail. Be clear about that. I like the point that you've highlighted about Eurocentric men because in history you had where, especially with Spain and France where they had queens, and those countries did not treat Spain and, I think, Portugal, and for a time, England, when they had female monarchies, they didn't treat them with a lot of respect because they felt like they didn't have the brain power or the ability to delegate and to rule until there was a male in in front. So that also speaks to the, the mentality as far as not only just from a racial, but also even from a gender aspect that it was always perpetuated to keep control and dominance. Yes, what you're speaking of now, which is very key, and that's another pillar to put on the table, what you're speaking of is patriarchy. When you add patriarchy, you know, we really are beginning to see a system. For example, white patriarchy, all right, is the Catholic Church. I mean, all them bishops, <laughs> that's that's a prime example of white patriarchy. And look at the control that is exercised by that core group of white men, the control and the influence and the reach that they have over this entire planet sitting in the Vatican in Italy. Patriarchy. It's the system. It's the good old boy network. That's what that is. White patriarchy. Blumenbach did not consider himself and did not consider his degenerative hypothesis as racist. And he, in fact, criticized other overtly racist people at that time. And he even wrote a couple of essays in reaction to those overt racists. He wrote a couple of essays stating that non-white peoples are capable of excelling in the arts and sciences. However, those ideas of his did not, of course, 
get as much play. So he didn't see himself as racist. His ideas were adopted by other researchers who used them to encourage what is known as scientific racism. That is a thing. Write that down, brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. Scientific racism. That is its own course of study. That's a real thing. Mm -hmm. Scientific Mm -hmm. racism. Now, just to muddy the waters a little bit and show you how complex this is, according to Blumenbach, there are five races all belonging to a single species, Caucasian, Mongolian, Ethiopian, American, and Malay. But at that time when he did this, this is what this is a quote from Johann Friedrich Blumenbach. This is a quote. I have allotted the first place to the Caucasian because this stock displays the most beautiful race of men, end quote. So wow. that was his opinion. So we can say that he wasn't racist, and I don't even know that that is a racist statement. If I said black people are just beautiful, we are just the most beautiful people on the planet, that doesn't necessarily make me racist it's just how i feel you know what i'm saying so i take that on balance what he said okay i take that on balance you know one of the things my mom used to always say and the way i try to move forward is i try to move forward recognizing that i am a human being that bleeds and so is everybody else in that room and i think if we can recognize that when you're entering a place of not knowing people that is, the, for me, that, that has always been my best starting point mm-hmm. in order to, in order to, because look, don't get it twisted. We all, if anybody said, oh, I'm just clean of any kind of preconceived notions and no, 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 I don't have any kind of racial thoughts in my head, I'd call bullshit. Okay, and I don't use that word often, but I call it bullshit. The reality is is that we all come with those. However, when you enter the opportunity to sit down with other people, if you can put those in a box for a second and then think of yourself on an even playing field, then that's where you can start to open the doors to learning. That's where you can open the doors to objectivity and understanding. Too many of us will sit in a meeting and let the alphas in the meeting run over us. For whatever our reasons, we can't find the words, we're nervous, whatever it is, we let the alphas run over us. And that tends to happen in society at large, particularly around issues of race and discussions of race. What I find is... Mm It is important, and the reason why I'm laying, digging up these roots and presenting them to you, brothers and sisters and the listeners, the reason why I'm doing this, because I think it's important in conversations for you to let people know what you know, that you can't run that bullshit on me and think that it's okay. I'm not the kind of dude that you can run that racial script on, that white patriarchy script, that we're white, we conquered, we won the world script, and think that everything is okay. So I think before we get to common ground, sometimes it's important for me to let you know what I know. Because then you know, okay, this ain't some nigga that just fell off the potato truck last night that I can just run my game on. No, he knows some things. So I got to deal with him like somebody who knows some things. Then we can get to common ground. Right, right. That's just what I think. Right, right, right. And that's the thing. Because we oftentimes don't enter into these conversations being thinking people. A lot of people are just running off rhetoric that they've already heard. Exactly. Two lines beyond the, the rhetoric that they've heard. And they can't, Crickets. They can't complete another sentence. Exactly. Yeah, so what about that? And, and what, where did you get that? And why do you think that? And, and then they, they can't. They're like lost. 
their their mouth is open. They don't. They have no oh, idea. The same thing what they just said. Yes, parroting. Just said, and, and, and don't even know where they got it from. And so I think that it's really important for us to all be able to have educated and nonviolent conversations. I remember years ago when I went to Bradley University, which did not have a lot of African American people in it, down in Peoria, Illinois. Great school, wonderful school, but we had a lot of people who were just initially there from farms. You know, because truth be told, Illinois is a farmland. That's right. what it is. For sure. Know? I was an RA, and I had one young lady. She was sitting down. I forgot. We were listening to music. We were talking or something like that. And she looked at me, and she said, you know, Michelle, she goes, you are a really cool black person. She goes, and if you don't mind me telling you, I am so happy to know you because I have never known a real black person in life before, in real life before. And some people would take that and go, oh, my God, you know, she just, and she went on to say, she goes, you know, the only way I know black people is from the Jeffersons and what my what I hear my father say about them. And that's not nice. Those are those things are not nice. And some people would get upset with that. And shit, we're at a university. We're in an educated place. And I said, well, you know what? That is amazing, and that is why I'm here. And if you have any questions that you want to ask about who I am and black people, feel free to have the conversation with me because then I can educate you to what I know about it. And, you know, that's what we've got to be able to do. We have to be able to have open conversation and open dialogue so that we can dispel, educate, and actually, that, to me, is what will disrupt the, the social construct. Well, let me tell you when I discovered that Illinois is mostly farms, <laughs> because I remember driving from Chicago, shooting in Chicago, to Ferguson, Missouri, and I drove from Chicago to Ferguson. And a couple of hours outside of Chicago, I was like, baby, we are not in the city anymore. I mean, I ain't never seen so much open land in my life. Okay. And I live around a lot of cornfields, but damn, I was like, there is nothing out here. And I'm telling you, as a black man on the highway by myself, I was driving a suburban, a black suburban at that time. I was going 55 and not a mile over. Because if if my black ass gets stopped out here, it is over for me. So I know what you mean about Illinois being a, a lot about the farmlands. And when you get outside of the city proper, Chicago proper, you know, a lot of people are unexposed to some of the things that you saw every day growing up on the south side of Chicago. They just don't know. And what they do know is what they see on TV or what they hear from their parents. My mother used to say this all the time. She said, when you walk out of this house, you represent me, you represent black people, you represent women, and you represent all the things that I have taught you. Now, some people don't believe that you should carry all of that, but that's how I was raised. That's why I always think it's important that when we sit down in discussions and when we're interacting with people, whether those people are ignorant or not, I have to remain the individual who remembers who I'm representing. Yeah, I think that every time I hear stories from you about how you were raised, and it's fascinating to me because I didn't grow up in a house where I was taught those things, and yet I learned those things okay but not because they were taught to me nobody said to me you represent black people that that level of racial consciousness was not present in our house you know we didn't talk about stuff like that i mean we saw it on the news and this is what you know i'm keeping it real with y'all this is what you would hear at my house we watching the news so and so committed a murder at the 7-eleven around the corner oh lord i hope he wasn't black oh who was was it black oh man he black 
Like, I would hear that. You know what I mean? That's the only way that race came into the conversation. But I was never taught, you know, from parent to child, you represent black people. We didn't talk to each other like that. But I learned from just being out in the world and interacting with people. And I understood, you know, the difference between the races. But my parents weren't instilling it into me that way in the way that you had it. You had a very overt instruction, you know, from your parents, a very overt lesson being taught to you. Yeah. And I think it might have been for several reasons. First of all, a lot of people don't know it, but Chicago was it's so funny. I was just there and I was taking my uncle someplace and I was driving over Western. Now, Western was the border. You might find a sign that said Negroes not beyond this point. Right. <laughs> Chicago is very polarizing. It still is in a lot of ways. It still is in, in very ways. But we had a strong and I'm not sure if it's still there but a strong Ku Klux Klan presence mm-hmm. in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking in Chicago, the city, south side of the city. Which and is so staggering, Michelle, because... And when you now, now take that in what she just said, brothers and sisters, because remember now, black folks, the great migration was from the rural south to the yeah. industrial north yeah. to Chicago. So that's what we were trying to get to Chicago. Yep, 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 exactly. Tell the late... 70s, I think. I could be wrong, but I think the late 70s, we had Ku Klux Klan rallies downtown, you know, with the horses, white, mm-hmm. white sheets and all of that mm-hmm. stuff. And so, you know, there was a strong presence. My mom and, you know, especially my stepfather, because my stepfather also, you know, I was at dinners like with the mayor and things like that. And so, you know, my mom was always forthright at letting me know what the deal might be and what her expectations were. Because, you know, here's this little eight, nine-year-old, ten-year-old girl at a dinner affair where the mayor and the runners of the city, um, the you know, the top politicians of the city was. And so I think that could have been the reason for that. I had a mixture of both between you and, and what, you know, Robert had as well. You know, as far as, you know, the conversation about, you know, was he black, you know, with the shooting. But also the fact that when you leave this house, you represent the bottom name and you're not going to shame me. And, you know, it was totally important an awareness because, like in my early years, it was fine until I got older in school and I was like, hey, you know, I'm being called these names. And so just so I can be prepared, you know, my parents look for, right. you know, like this world out here is not nice, even though I'm trying to give you a good Christian foundation. And But there's a real world out there. You need to be prepared for it. So don't go in with these glossy eyes. Right, right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's interesting. It's fascinating. I, every time I hear you talk about that, Tante, I, you know, I got lost for a minute thinking about my own childhood. And I was just sitting here thinking because you, you really moved me and touched me. I guess it was a month or so ago when you were talking about how your parents had to come to the school because you had been left out of uh, the music, yeah. the music presentation. Yeah. And that whole thing and how you had been called names. And you just mentioned it again. I was sitting here thinking, Robert, have you ever been called the only time that I ever remember being called nigger other than as a term of endearment (laughs) from one of my homeboys was in Fayetteville North Carolina and I was a grown man when that happened in the middle of the night I was driving from Atlanta and I had to stop and get gas I've told this story before at this little podunk place in the middle of the night and I walked in because you had to go in and pay before they would you know the gas would come out of the pumps and I walked in there like two o'clock in the morning and this big fat white man was sitting behind the table way in the back of the place with a couple other dudes drinking and stuff and I walked in and he looked over at me and said oh Lord, here come another nigga needing some gas. And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) At that point, I at that point, I started speaking in tongues to myself. I was like, Lord, just let me put this $20 
on this counter <laughs> and let that man take this $20 and please, as I walk out this store, let that gas come out of that pump and let me get the hell out of Fayetteville, North Carolina at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> but that's the only time that I ever remember being called a nigger in my life honestly and so i'm trying to think what that was you know growing up we we had one white person who lived behind us like not directly behind me but catty corner behind me and there were certainly white people mostly black but a few white people here and there in elementary school junior how we integrated a white school i didn't have that kind of race consciousness i really didn't i, I just didn't have it i was aware but never had any overtly racist experiences that scarred me. You know what I mean? That scarred me. It may have happened. I don't right. remember, but that right. would speak to it. Not scarring me. You know what I mean? I can't call it out right now. Right. 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 You know, Michelle, it's interesting. I, I have family that live in Chicago. They live on the West side and also on the South side. And with my aunts, my grandmother, sisters, and, and all the stories that I've heard, I always heard them talk about, when they lived in Mississippi and lived on the farm and the racism and the Ku Klux Klan and all that, and that's why they came to Chicago. But I never really heard them tell stories about the Klan or, you know, really racism in Chicago because they were talking about on how, you know, it was, you know, trying to get the rest of the family to come up there. Right. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's opportunity and everything else like that because my grandmother and some of my aunts went south to Fort Myers, Florida, while the others went north, and you know, so and they always talk about racism in terms of in Florida or in Mississippi, but I never right. heard them telling these stories in Chicago. So when you tell me that story, that's really fascinating because I'm going to ask my aunt when I go see her at the same reunion, like, hey. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, you know, I think too because Chicago is in pockets. So you know, the South Side, like most of the time when you say the South Side, I just had a friend of mine from Switzerland who was saying that, oh, you know, I was told you don't go on the South Side because it's dangerous. And I was like, it's not dangerous. It's just that it's only houses. It's not like um, the North Side of Chicago. It's not like New York. It's just home. So there would be no reason for you to go. You know, there has a, you know, every neighborhood had a few like little, you know, might have the diner or something like that. But otherwise, it's just really primarily home. And that was where the black community stayed. The black community had their, at that point, they had their own little grocery store. They had their own little, you know, liquor store. They had their own little restaurants and things like that that they went to within those areas. And so there's a very safe arena. I, I mean, I, I know as coming up as a child, I felt very, very safe and didn't feel any of those impacts. But then when... My mom, you know, when she married a gentleman and we were dealing with more of that, then I started feeling it. And we started going downtown. And, for instance, at Woolworths, you couldn't sit in Woolworths. That was just, like, known. Like, sometimes they wouldn't serve you, depending on who went in there and when you went in there. We, we wouldn't serve you. There was another restaurant called um, Bergdorf's, I think it was, Bergdorf's. And it was a German restaurant. And you knew if you were a black person, you were not going to be served. I think at one point they had a sign there just said, black's not allowed. So it was when you started venturing out to other areas that you then found this. But otherwise, because Chicago is and was a very community-oriented place, you had the south side where you're black, the southwest side where you had, that's where the Ku Klux Klan area was. Then you had, you know, Greek town and all of those different things. And so it was very divided ethnically. You felt very safe in those environments. And so if you never ventured into those environments, then you might not ever experience that. 
Yeah, let me say a few things too, uh-huh. because I appreciate the level of diversity in this conversation. And we have it here amongst the three of us. First thing is Michelle's story, Dante. It does, and you just proved it. It breaks a commonly held myth that racism pretty much only happened in the South <laughs> and that the North was the place right. to get to, to free ourselves from this racist South. That's a myth. It was predominant in the South, but it's certainly everywhere there were white people, there was racist. Just let's just, let me just cut to that chase. That's the first thing. The second thing is, if you look at the three of us, even though technically Maryland is a Southern state, it is below the Mason-Dixon line. My parents are from Pennsylvania. That is a Northern state. So it is the tradition of many African-Americans to, and you see this in all kinds of novels and in our oral tradition, to send their kids down south to grannies for summertime. You know what I mean? Okay. Okay. That's a tradition. And then they come back. Well, see, I don't have that. I didn't go down south. We went north to Pennsylvania to be with people for the summer. So that's one thing. Two, Dante, although I appreciate that you've lived all over the world because your father is part of the was part of the armed services, when you look at your parents' parentage and lineage, if I'm not mistaken, they're southern based. Your mom is from Florida, right? Yeah, both Okay, so they're both from Fort Myer, Florida, so they're Southerners. So that tradition, and when I hear you talk about going to the family reunion, although you have relatives in New York, I hear you talking about Alabama and Louisiana and Mississippi. You have Southern roots, okay? Your antecedents or predecessors, ancestors, are Southern-based pretty much. So you have a different experience than I do. Michelle is from the Midwest. She's got an even different experience. So here we have, other than the the hard West, we represent three different geographical regions in this country. And our stories reflect that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They reflect that. So I just wanted to pull that detail out as I sit here and listen to us talk, because we all have very different experiences. And it just dawned on me that I don't have the going South for summer traditional in my family. We don't have that. We don't know nobody that I need to go to. <laughs> and I don't have nobody in North Carolina. Okay, South Carolina, I don't have nobody down there. So I don't, I mean, I mean, I can look at my family tree and see that, you know, two or three generations ago they came from there, but I have no living ancestors in the South that I'm aware of now on either side of my family. So I don't have that. We are Northerners, pretty much. Maryland and, and, and North. Maryland and Pennsylvania. You know, Dante, as I said, has a very different tradition. And Michelle, you're out in the Midwest. So that's a triangle that we have there. And our stories do definitely, our, our race stories in particular for this conversation, it kind of reflects that. Reflects that. It reflects that, yeah. Right. If you think race is sensitive, uh, so I'm, I'm going to put it out here and let's see how where we go with it. We're talking about race, class, and poverty. When you begin to talk about class and there are differences in class. Now, this is sensitive for a lot of people, but let's just go here. I just illuminated our differences in geography, and that does account for some of our stories. There are class differences, too, and that Mm -hmm. also accounts for some of our different experiences. There are people... Okay, and this is just, let's just go here. There are people who did not grow up with a front yard and a backyard and a mother and a father and multiple cars in the family and a swimming pool and all of these things that I grew up with. We were a solidly, solidly, if not upper middle class family. That's the class part of that. Each one of us also has a class story and that also affects because certain classes don't necessarily experience some of the things in the same way that other classes experience it. The experience of a working, I read a couple, I don't think you were here that week, Michelle. I read, maybe you were, when I read the story of 
the woman from Facebook, my Facebook friend, Brenda, gave me a story. And she was saying how her only black, the only black male in her life was her sixth grade teacher who used to give her cookies and Mm. apples. And that's all she knew (laughs) in terms of a responsible brother who wore a suit every day. And she saw him with a tie. And this was very Mm -hmm. different from some of the imagery that she saw where she lived. And she talked about growing up on Medicaid and having the Medicaid card. And that's the only insurance that she knew. That was a different class than what I grew up in. Mm. And so we have different experiences based upon the class that we occupy. Class is a social construct, too. I'm using it in this sense to draw out further detail and complexity in our stories. I'm fully aware that it's a social construct. Ain't too many black people I know that ain't two or three paychecks away from complete and utter and total devastation. And so I definitely put myself in that class. But I'm just saying, materially speaking. I could think of what we're talking about, the construct of race and class. I think about the term that we use, poor white trash, if you will. The living the trailers and all that kind of stuff like that. Still having less than maybe some of the middle class black persons, but still feeling a sense of entitlement on arrogance. Well, at least I'm not black. Right. And I remember mm-hmm. hearing that. I'm like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have mm-hmm. an education. I've gone to school and everything. And I'm mm-hmm. black. You think highly of you, you know, but you think just because of your skin color, I'm automatically better, even though materialistically wise, class wise, quote unquote, you could say that I'm, I'm above you. Mm-hmm. Well, what you're talking about there, Dante, is called white privilege. And white people are very conscious of the fact that even though you might be an uppity black who got something, you still don't have the one thing that I have that gets me in every door that I walk through and that's my white privilege and they're right that's true oh yes that's true yes yes you can't deny it they are your poorest white person is aware of their white privilege they're aware yeah, many, many people believed in their hearts a lot of these things before the 1700s. What these brothers did was they allowed people to pin the feelings of their hearts on science. They could then say, oh, this is not just me talking. It's scientifically proven that black people are X, Y, and so, and white people are X, Y, and so. Prior to some of these brothers on the scene, people really couldn't point to science to say that. They just had whatever they felt innately in their heart. But this gave people a scientific hat to hang on a post somewhere. And that's the danger of it. And that's also how the term scientific racism came about, because now you had some, quote unquote, science to back up your prejudice and your racism. Very interesting. That's the game, brothers and sisters, to keep you uneducated, to keep you in the dark about who you really are. This is not a new game. It's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. But when you wake up to it, you then assume some spiritual power. Here's the thing. And this can work for you or against you in business. It might not happen right away, but anybody who is in business with me, I can take my most recent experience making Fix My Life with the OWN Network. I didn't know the OWN people. At that time, they were the Harpo people. I didn't know them. Yana brought me into that situation, and I began to meet them and talk to them and develop relationships with them. And it wasn't long before I knew that they knew that I ain't just some brother who fell off a truck somewhere a couple of weeks back. And, you know, you got to sort of prop me up and treat me like I ought to just be happy to be in the house. See, that becomes very obvious when you're with me for a certain amount of time. They know that I know some things and you can't just treat me or talk to me any kind of way and think that everything is okay. So they also know when you don't know, when you let things pass and don't speak on things, it becomes clear to them that you don't know and that you are one of those who is just so happy that I'm in the house, Massa. I'm just so happy to be here. And so glad that I ain't out there in them fields doing all that hard work. 
See, they know when you're that kind of person too. So your power is in first knowing yourself and then developing a way of being in this world where at the right time and in the right way that is appropriate to the setting that you're in to let other people know that you know. Very important. Let other people know that you know. Now, 20 years ago, <laughs> or even 10 years ago, I'd be charging in there letting you know what I know. Now I'm have more sophistication about it. You know what I'm saying? I carry myself in a way because I've had some years on the planet so I can carry myself in a way now that doesn't have to just come out and let you know some things. But just by virtue of the way that I'm addressing you and talking to you, I always get this when I go to my doctor and talk to the doctor. And one time I was talking to the doctor about two years ago and he said to me, I think I shared this. I'm just so impressed with, you know, the way that you put words together and your articulation. You're just so well spoken. And I'm looking at him like I didn't know whether to be offended or to say thank you. (laughs) I just kind of looked at him like, the fuck are you talking about? I'm sharing that because that let me know that he knows that I know some things. That's my point. Yeah. Yeah. That's like when you're speaking on the phone to talking to someone, and then when they see you, then they have, oh, you don't look how I thought you sounded. And you're like, well, what did you expect? Basically, in other words, they thought you were white, but actually you're black. And mm-hmm. so because of the way you spoke, the way you are, like, put your words together, you don't know how to take that. I've shared this before. I'm, I'm, I remember sharing this before, but many years ago, this was half my lifetime. I'm 51. So this was, I was probably 23 when this happened and I was doing a radio show on WPGC in Washington. And I w- was the only one working on the show. I didn't have a producer. I didn't have nothing. It was just me. And so I would do all the calls and try to book the people and all that stuff I was doing myself. So I'm pre-interviewing him over the phone and all that. He was delightful, lovely. And the day of the interview, when he walked up them steps to come to the studio and I came down to get him and he looked at me and I said, hey, I'm so glad you're here, Mark so-and-so, da-da-da-da-da-da. And he was like, yes, where's Mr. Branch? And I said, I am Mr. Branch. And I could see him seize up, you know, like a souffle. You know how a souffle would just seize up when you open up the oven door? I could just see him seize up and I could see the exterior going over his body and his spirit, and his aura. And we went to that studio and I'm telling you, the first 10 minutes was like, pulling teeth he did not want to answer my questions he didn't want to be there he did not want to respond to me as this young brother and at that time he was probably 20 years older than i was i was 23 so i was a young dude and he did not respond well to me at all and then when we 10 minutes into it after the seriousness of the questions and he realized oh shit he's read these things he's done this work he's asking me serious questions he forgot that i was a young black dude and began to open up and respond to me as someone who was informed and educated on the issues and who he could sit down with and have a real conversation with. And by the time it was over, he straight up said to me, I did not plan to share with you everything. He said this on the air. I did not plan to share with you everything that I shared with you today. Now, I didn't ask the brother why. I knew why, but I didn't ask him why. At that time, I was very young and, you know, wouldn't have done that on the air. I would do it today, but I didn't do it then. But I knew because when he first saw me, he thought that I was some young black dude who was going to make him look bad on the air probably. Or wasn't on his level. So it's important, brothers and sisters, to let people know. When Michelle shows up, and I can just know from my business dealings with you, as soon as you start speaking, people know, oh, she has been some places. And you don't even have to detail your travels. Just by the way you put your words together and the way that you speak, they take on a certain way of being with you because they know that you're on a certain level. And so it's really important to let people know that you are woke on these things. 
And the reason why it's important, again, is because now you can come back at them with some information. I mean, if you drop Blumenbach's name or Morton's name or Linnaeus's name in one of your conversations, you know, you're going to get a certain response from people. Whereas if they if you allow them to run that game on you, which is a game, but it's also a program. That's really what it is to be more esoteric about it. It's a program that was entered into human consciousness back in the time of Linnaeus and Blumenbach and Morton. It's a program. It's a social program. When we say race is a social construct, that's what we mean. It is a program that is running in the matrix that left unchecked, left unfiltered with no virus protection will destroy you. It will infect you <laughs> with the right. disease of racism. It will infect you. That's right. So when you wake up, you turn on your virus protection software internally, and now you're aware. You're like, oh, that's funny what you just said. Mm-hmm. That, that, I know where that comes from. The key part about Morton, he was one of the most significant and visible and prominent American scientists to do this, to use quote unquote scientific findings to perpetuate idea racist ideas in the larger society. Prior to his sort of era, it was coming mostly from Europeans. Now, of course, Europeans, white European Americans settled this country. So, you know, they were bringing over some ideas with them. But this was an American born Philadelphia native son who began to perpetuate these ideas based upon this version of natural science. If you keep reading all the way down to the end of his story and Blumenbach's story and even Linnaeus's to some degree, a lot of this is now categorized, even your Wikipedias and so forth will characterize it this way as pseudoscience. It's not widely accepted. Ask yourself, why do I need to make someone superior to me? That's the first question. And why do I need to make Mm. someone inferior to me? Where's that coming from within myself? And we'll never know where it was coming from in Linnaeus and Blumenbach and uh, Morton. We'll never know. They're long gone for this world. But I'm talking about today when you walk into the boardroom on Monday and have a meeting with your colleagues and somebody says something to you that is not even necessarily racist, but just rude or patronizing or, you know, just a lie or inconsistent with, you know, the established norms of of being courteous and kind to someone. Why do you let people get away with that? Why do you put people above you? Dante told me something once, which I've never forgotten. Nobody is above you. They're just ahead of you in line. I like that. That's the same level. You just have taken some steps I haven't taken yet. You're not above me. You're not below me. You're just ahead of me in certain areas in life. That's the great equalizer. I love that visual. And so why is it that white men on this planet historically have had to make themselves better than other people on this planet? What is that? That is a sickness. That is a spiritual sickness. That is something within us that we need to conquer, tackle, and evolve. And Michelle hit this, and I underlined it and wrote it down, and and now I'm able to comment on it. Michelle mentioned the ruling class, and that's a very important point, brothers and sisters. There is a ruling class on this planet and in this country. Now, we're going to leave the planetary rulers aside for a minute because a lot of y'all are not going to digest that. So let's put that on the sidebar. And just talk about the ruling class of this country. Let's just keep it to the United States of America. There is a ruling class here. Just to list a few descriptors, they are billionaires. That is a ruling class. People who have lots and lots and lots of money. Old school moneyed families that are part of a ruling class. Big 
business. When you break down big business, you're talking about these ruling class families who own these businesses. It's really important to understand that. That's who primarily benefits from these laws that are being passed. It's not the people. That is the ruling class, the people who have money. Mm -hmm. It is a have and have Mm -hmm. not society. Now, what they want you to believe is that it's all race-based. And race plays a factor, but even more important than race, because there's a lot of poor white folks out here. Race plays a factor, Mm -hmm. but it's class that plays the biggest factor Mm -hmm. in how your life is run in this country, is those who have and those who have not. Yep, that is an excellent point because what they do is they keep the working class distracted by this issue of race. Exactly. And while we're bopping around, being pissed off at each other and shooting each other and killing each other and not moving into each other's neighborhoods and stuff like that, they're moving forward doing the things that they need to do. And it keeps us distracted instead of being able to look at the fact that, hey, our neighborhood is going down. It doesn't matter that we've got these group of people and these group of people. Our whole neighborhood is going down because we're not getting the appropriate tax dollars allocated to our neighborhood. Let's stay right there. Now let's stay right with the neighborhoods because I want to really drill down on this with you because you're from, and I'm not saying you're, that you were from one of those neighborhoods, but I'm saying you're from Chicago. And I would like you to help us understand, mm-hmm. Michelle, honestly, what are we seeing in Chicago? What is going on in some of those neighborhoods in Chicago where these record numbers of children are just being shot down, people being killed? We all experience violence in our communities. What is it that you know that makes it such a hotbed for death and murder in Chicago? What is that? Um, uh, okay, because, you know... I'm not trying to put all of that on you. I'm just asking for some understanding. No, 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 you're, you're not. I think along the word of class, we have to also speak, because to me the word class also means mentality. Mm-hmm, true. And so along the, these lines of class, we have a mentality that has moved into some of these neighborhoods. Now, I speak about it as though it's recent, but it's not recent. When Chicago did a great thing of trying to, you know, because we had these huge ghettoed communities, Robert Taylor Holmes, mm-hmm. Cabrini, Cabrini Green, Green yeah. things of that mm-hmm. sort. And you talk about that cycle of poverty and you talk about that mentality of poverty. And ultimately what Chicago did was decided to tear those down and they gave people access and or vouchers and or the potential to move to different communities. Mm-hmm. However, I could move to a fabulous neighborhood, but my mentality might not change. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I'll have no appreciation for what it is that I've received. If I don't appreciate living in a nice, clean neighborhood, or if I don't appreciate living in a big mansion, I'm not going to take care of that big mansion. And so I'm using that as an analogy because the mentalities that moved into these neighborhoods did not change. And so what you ended up with was the same type of mentality that came out of these areas that came out of those really kind of destructive cycle of poverty areas, but the mentality didn't change. Let me go here. The less resources you have in any given community, and right now I'm speaking of a black community, the less resources that are available, 
the higher the crime rate is going to be. We all know that. That's not breaking news. We understand that. What I want to understand is, and I do get it because I have it in my own family. Some of these brothers, a couple of things. Why is it easier to get a gun than get a job? Why is it easier to get drugs than it is to get a job? These are the things. Guns and drugs and crime are more prevalent in the communities that we're speaking of than schools and jobs, upwardly mobile jobs. And a lot of these brothers are not willing to, and I know them, they're in my family too. A lot of these brothers are not willing to do what Dante did, what I did, what you did, Michelle. They're not willing to work at the local chicken restaurant like you did, Michelle, a steak restaurant that you did, that you showed me the picture that has now been torn down, was an integral part of the community for a generation. They're not willing to work there and fry Mm -hmm. steaks and fry fries and serve them up. They're not going to do that, but they will stand on that corner and sell you a baggie. They will do that because it's quick and fast. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Because if that's the life that you've lived and you know that as the normal course of life, that's what happens. And so, yes, I use this proper word of mentality because I don't want to be offensive, but that's what happens. You come to a beautiful neighborhood and if all you know how to make money is selling drugs, why are you going to change? Especially when that neighborhood's not offering you anything that is different. And even if it is, You still know what you know, because don't get it wrong. Chicago is an absolutely amazing city to raise a family. Mm -hmm. Our neighborhoods have schools. Our neighborhoods have high schools. I have never lived in a neighborhood where I couldn't walk to my grammar school. Mm -hmm. We've got all of that. What we don't have are communities that are filled with small businesses anymore. Mm -hmm. We don't have communities that are filled with the respect of our elders, the acknowledgement and teaching of our parents and things of that sort. There was a brother in Chicago who had been shot and was using napkins from his grandmother's table to bandage his wound and gaffer tape that he Mm -hmm. borrowed from the crew to bandage his wound. I mean, he had been to the hospital. He had the stitches, the stitches were healed, but you still got to nurse those wounds. You still got to put salve on them and keep them covered. He was using band-aids, gaffer tape from the crew who was shooting this story and napkins from his grandmother's table. So the resources are thin. They're thin. But this brother told the producer that the first thing that he puts on after his clothing every morning is he straps on that gun. So how do I get that brother with nothing? How do I get that brother to take him by the hand and say, okay, come on over here. We're going to go to this job training program. You're not going to get paid for it, but in six months you'll have some skills. That is not an attractive, that is not an attractive plan for a young man. There's nothing attractive about that. That's it. When I know I can go out here and even though I'm selling, hold on, even when I know I can go out here and even though I'm selling to Miss Susie, who I love and is friends with my mother, two or three crack baggies a day, that's still 80 bucks that I know is going to be in my pocket that I can go get some real surgical tape and some real bandages to bandage my gunshot wounds with. So how do you pull people out of that? It's very hard. To that point, it's very hard, but that is why we need to hold our government and ask for and demand these programs and our government programs. Because let me tell you something different. When I was 12, 13, now just think about this. So we're talking 35 years ago. 35 years ago, I went to a job training program, or it was kind of like you could, if you were in high school, you could try these different things through the summer, right? So high school, I got to go to this science program where I learned all about the intricacies of breeding and or creating diseases and letting them spawn and, and whatnot and what things that you would do in a laboratory. And so we were actually working for a lab and we learned and they trained us and all this. I was 13. This is something that was through my high school. I was making $13 an hour. 
35 years ago. Mm-hmm. Do you hear me? And this is what I'm talking about. When we let government programs go and we go, oh, that, that's just for poor people. No, it's a middle class person. They're just using it up, using it up. You have to make things valuable and interesting and give people some nuggets of all these billions of trillions of dollars that we're spending. And that is the issue. And, Robert, that's what you pointed out very well. How do you take a young man who can go out on a corner and sell some drugs, how do you get him to go to a program that he has to do for free, Mm -hmm. not bringing anything into the house, not being able to do anything that takes his mind away from this that is already set in his his life? Okay, so hold right there. Hold right there. Let's just stay right where you brought us. Okay. So we've articulated that space that this brother finds himself in. They know the, they being the ruling class, they know the quandary that these brothers are in. And the answer for them is lock them up. And Robert, just speak about how much we pay as taxpayers for every person who is in prison. Prison, Yeah. It's a per capita fee. That's right. So think about it. You'll pay $50,000 per year to put some young man in prison as opposed to taking $50,000 and attributing it to maybe an after-school program that can divert that mindset. And so that's why people, as we the people, we need to wake up and say, no, this cannot happen. Let me go here real quick. I don't in any way condone selling drugs. Or using drugs for that matter, although I have used drugs and have sold drugs in my life. I have done both of those things. I remember when I was at Discovery Channel, I think I've shared this before. There was a guy in the mailroom whose name I will not call out. And he sold weed from the mailroom. There was several times when he would put the FedEx package on my desk and I knew exactly what was in there. And I'd give him the money and he would set the FedEx package down and and it would immediately go into my briefcase and go home with me. So all I'm saying, brothers and sisters out there, is I understand, brothers, that that's the immediate choice that's in front of you. Do it if you have to do it. If it's the difference between putting some bread on your mama table Mm -hmm. and not do it. But also get a job, boys. Find a real legitimate job. I don't care if it's at McDonald's. Find a real legitimate job. And at the same time that you're selling drugs, even if it's just a part-time job, get into the legitimate workspace some kind of way. I don't care if it's at the barbershop. I don't care where it is. But get in and get some taxes coming out of a paycheck. Begin to get into a legitimate line of work, even if you're still selling drugs. That boy was selling drugs from the mailroom of Discovery Channel. But he still had a job. That was dessert for him. It wasn't the cake. He had a mentality. That's right. He had a mentality to do better. There is no future, brothers and sisters. And I don't know how many of them are listening. Probably none of them. But there is no long-term future in having an illegitimate line of work for years and years and years and years. There is no future in that. You've got nothing to look forward to in terms of retirement, in terms of Social Security. There's nothing for you. So you've got to, at some point, get into the system in a good way. Not the prison system, but into the economic employment system. You've got to get in in some kind of way. You really do. And if you are in the prison system and in the criminal justice system, the odds are even further stacked against you of getting a legitimate job when you come through the other end of that system. It is a vicious cycle. Mm -hmm. And I feel for the brothers and sisters who are caught up in it. There's no easy out for that. What it's going to take is, and I'm looking at black folks now. I'm looking at all you black folks out there, you upwardly mobile, buppy, successful black folks who got your jobs and got your cars and got your houses and got your two-week vacations and life is wonderful for you. It's going to take you 
to hire some of these brothers and sisters to do work. It's going to That's take right. you. I ain't talking about white folks. Yeah. I'm talking about and black people and take a chance on some of these brothers and sisters and yeah they're going to be splitting verbs left and right on the job and you're going to twinge and you're going to be embarrassed yes but that's when you got to stay after work and miss your little bowling alley or miss your little movie night or whatever you're doing stay after work and sit the brothers and sisters down and say here's how we're going to talk to so-and-so here's what we say to so-and-so when they come in in the morning here's how we do this here's how we dress for meetings you have to take them to school take them under your wing and under your under school that ain't got nothing to do with a government program that has to do with everything about the people who have made it through the system being accountable to the people who haven't. Mm-hmm. That's what that's, mm-hmm. that's how that's going to change. Absolutely. I totally agree with you, Robert. We have and to, that, but, which, which is what no. we used to be. We were always accountable to each other exactly. and to our children. It takes a village to raise a, to raise a child is what I heard as I was growing up. You know, you didn't talk back to your babysitter because she was an extension of your mother and everybody was an extension of your grandmother. Mm-hmm. That's why when granny walked in the room, you damn near got on your knees. Mm-hmm. You know? and let me interject this question with all that you've said, Robert. What about those individuals when you when you try to, you know, young brother, let me, let me come and talk to you. Son. Man, you ain't got nothing to say to me. You know, you think you all this and I get, so you're trying to impart that wisdom but you get rejected. Do you still keep it moving or do you still try to empower I'm not saying that everybody is going to be receptive to your overture. I'm not saying go stand out on the street corner and try to pull somebody in off the street. I'm saying, particularly for a brother like you, you're in church. And every now and then one of them brothers comes to church with his grandmother or his mother. And you can see the vulnerabilities there. You can see the disenfranchisement of that brother. You can feel what they're into and that they might be receptive if they're in church to a brother giving them a leg up. I'm saying go for those. Go for the, what they call the low-hanging fruit, okay? Go for what you can, go for somebody who you can actually reach. You can reach some of these brothers, especially somebody like you who is in church. It's harder for me because I'm not in church like that and I'm no longer in a position in a corporate structure where I can bend the rules and get you in here. But my conscience is clear though because every time I could, I did. Now I do it through this way and through trying to be a positive influence and through the content that I create. But when I was in a position to help people, I did. And that's all I'm saying. Wherever you are, reach out from wherever you are and try to reach some of these brothers because that's what's going to change things. Even though I'm very open to government programs, I've benefited from them. I'm open to more money coming into the community and all of that. What I am most open to is evolving our family systems. A lot of our problems can be solved within the family. Out of my mouth. I love you, brother. Even if you, without the church structure, everything else, we all have family. Yes. We all have those cousins, those nieces, those nephews. Some of them you can't get to, but the ones that you can, drop that knowledge. You pour that insight. You let them know that I'm supporting them. And then when they make mistakes, you know what, brother? We all make mistakes. I'm, I'm not going to abandon you. When you pour into them that which you have to those, then you, that will start the beginning process of it. It's got to start at home. So we got to have a consciousness that's not just look just for the neighborhood kids, but look for the ones that's in our own house. Re-engage the family system because you know what? We have a powerful love and understanding of each other. We can understand the anger. We can understand the angst. We can understand the embarrassment, the uncomfortableness. So we have to be the ones to re-engage our family. And when we say family, I think all of us are not talking about necessarily blood. We have to re-engage our family community system. More specifically to your point, Michelle, I'm going to put it right in the pocket. 
brothers, a lot of these young brothers will listen to other brothers. And not only do we have to be brothers to one another, but some of us have to learn how to be fathers to our peers. Okay. Some of these young brothers don't need another brother. In their drug affiliations, they've got plenty of brotherhood. What they don't have is fatherhood. And so even if it's a brother that's the same age as you, but it's coming from a different place, he don't need another brother. He needs you to be a father to him. And a father takes you by the hand and shows you another way. A father is not complicit in your wrongness and complicit in your illegality and criminality. That's not a father. That's a brother. That's a brother. Some of so we have to learn how to father each other. You can take the hardest thug in any of these drug circles, the hardest one, pick the hardest one. And I guarantee you can bring him to tears if you sit him down and talk about fatherhood, not his fatherhood with his children, but the father that he has. Okay. Or did not have and does not have that will shake that brother to his core. Father absence is the core of what ails these brothers in our community father absence so that means that those of us who are conscious and awake have to become fathers to these vulnerable brothers it's important brothers it's important we have to learn how to do that work that's the work if you're going to give me some government money give me government money to do that teach men how to be not only brothers but fathers to each other i'm not talking about fathering your children that is important too i'll take money for that as well i'm talking about fathering other brothers In your peer group, Mm -hmm. because they don't have fathers, many of them. Mm -hmm. They just don't know. And my life seems so far away from anything that they can imagine for themselves. It seems so far away. They just can't see how they would ever get from gangbanging to sitting up at their own network, making a television program. They can't even conceive that. Mm -hmm. Now, at the same time, ask these brothers to draw you a tattoo. They got that. Ask them to put some art to paper. They got that. Ask them to drop you some lines. Write me two two songs about your life. They can do it on a dime. Don't even have to write it down. Can just recite it after you. The talent is there. And a father will show you how to take your talent and make a life from it. Make a living from it. That's what a father would do. They need fathers. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. We have many solutions at our own fingertips within the family, within the African-American family. There's a lot we can do, y'all. There's a lot we can do. I'm doing my part right now. This is what I do right Mm -hmm. now. For whomever that will reach, wherever they may be, this is my contribution to the planet, what I'm doing right now. There are other things too, but right in this moment, this is what I do. So if you're still here and you don't know what your contribution is and how you can help If you're not part of, this is a cliche, but it's a good one, y'all. If you're not part of the solution, you are part of the problem. Honestly. If you're not conscious about what you can, I I went to a sermon one time. The brother was named Father Stallings. Y'all have heard about him back in the day. He had Imani Temple African-American congregation in Washington and a lot of controversy with that. But he preached a sermon one time that I'll never forget. This, This was back in 1986. He said, you're either helping with the healing or you're working with the wounding. Hallelujah. You're either helping with the healing or you are working with the wounding. And that's another way of saying if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. So you got to understand what your gifts are and what you're here to do and just begin to do them. It doesn't have to be grand on the Oprah level. That's not even important. That's a matter of scale. That's a matter of scale doesn't matter what the scale is. Helping one person across the street who can't walk is just as good as helping a million people who can't walk. It means the same thing to that one person who you helped. 
it means the same thing. That's right. All right. So get clear on what your gifts and stuff are, brothers and sisters, because we can help these brothers. A lot of them. Some of them are not going to listen to me because I haven't walked the walk that they've walked. But some of you have been gangbangers. I've never been to prison. Ain't no uh, that I'm aware of. Ain't no fingerprint of mine in any police precinct in anywhere in this country or on this planet that I've ever given. I've never been in the back of a police car. I don't know nothing about that. So a lot of these brothers aren't going to hear me. But there are a lot of you that have walked that walk. You know, they'll listen to you. All the, dr- the uh, not all of them, but a lot of the, my audience here and our audience who have been on drugs and who have abused alcohol, they hear me because they know I've been there. I can speak to that. They know I know. So they'll hear me. What I have to say resonates with them. So find your audience wherever they may be and use your own story to help people. I can recall growing up in South Florida for a period of time before my parents started traveling around the world. When I stayed with my grandmother, my grandmother worked as well with the school system as a domestic maid for this Caucasian lady named Miss Donna. She did day's work. And, That's what they uh, used to call Ms. it. Donna, day's work. Yeah, she did this on the weekends. Mm-hmm. And so... Have you heard that phrase before? Donna's house. And the- day's work? Mm-hmm. Okay. I've heard that. All right. Uh-huh. I mean, Miss Donna had some very beautiful, beautiful things. So that's how my grandmother would begin to collect some of the things that we had at our house. Some of her counterparts, my grandmother's counterparts. Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. Hold on. So when you say collect, do you mean they would come from Miss Donna's house or your grandmother would go out and buy similar yes. pieces? No. Miss Donna would give those. Okay. To I think I just want you to be clear about that. <laughs> yes, so, okay. Yeah. Let, let, yeah, let me say Yeah, because when you say collect, that's how we Miss began Donna, to collect. Yeah. Okay. Collect. <laughs> Okay, yeah, no, not that kind of collection. Right, exactly. As Madonna would get new stuff, yeah, it would get newer stuff, she would give it to my grandmother. Right. So which was gently used. Some of my grandmother's friends or counterparts, where their husbands worked in more established industries where they could afford to buy it themselves, so they were able to purchase it themselves. So they stayed in, you know, maybe nicer houses or things of that particular sort, but their attitude changed. So because they had the ability to buy the same things that my grandmother was given, that was my first introduction to the term of bougie because they all came from Mississippi or Alabama and had very little education. But because some of them were able to have a spouse to get a matter of means to be able to purchase very nice things, then they wanted to act a certain way and wanted to, you know, they wore these nice clothing and they wanted to be, as my brother, to act bougie. So that was my first understanding and, and first exposure to that. So I, I bring that up to just brought the remembrance and, and you know, I was a little boy around late 70s on how that mentality was very much permeated as far as in the black community in terms of having a means of wealth, having to be in the nice things. And my grandmother had some of the same things. It was just the fact that she was fortunate enough that it was given to her as opposed to having to buy it herself. I have to kind of push back my tears when I when I just think of that time and just think of how people were so determined to create their own reality in mm-hmm. their own stance of science. Mm-hmm. It's just so sad. It's so so sad. It hurt. It it hurts. It hurts heart exactly. It hurts exactly. It really does. It hurts my heart because we're talking about this from this perspective of ourselves as African-Americans, but this has happened throughout time exactly. to the Native American, to Jews, and it just it just hurts. It really, it's sad what human beings have can done do done to one another. To exactly. One another. Exactly. Come on now. In the face of science in this 
sense, but it also, it really, really taps into this arena of needing to feel superior. Exactly. And I often say, and I say this, I ask people oftentimes, oh my God, you know, what's the most addictive drug on earth? And people will say, oh, meth or coke, blah, blah. I say, uh-uh, power. Mm-hmm. Power is the most addictive addictive drug and destructive drug, not only because ultimately power is a drug that doesn't oftentimes destroy its owner, <laughs> it destroys those in which it's inflicting that power upon. Exactly. We see men who have been given a voice of power, and they've utilized that power to actually perpetrate this unknowingness and perpetrate this scientific racism that has now permeated throughout our society over the last 200 years. It hurts my gut. Me too. You know, because I would like to think as a human being, and as human beings, we're better than that. But what I realize is that we're not. We're not, exactly. We're not better than that. It's who we are. I'm going to get a comment in here because I totally agree with it. <laughs> that Brenda wrote, she writes here, educate the ignorant when they still have the economic upper hand. No thanks. Now, I appreciate that comment because I appreciate That's education. Right. I think education is a word that is so overused that it doesn't even have meaning anymore. It's like, have a nice day. What? Mm-hmm. So I don't tend to say mm-hmm. education. What I intend to do is to liberate people from indoctrination. And much of what passes off as education in our modern day society is not education. It's indoctrination. It's the repeating of indoctrinated right. thoughts. And so indoctrinated thoughts. a lot That's of the right. people who hold this economic upper hand that Brenda is speaking of are people that are, quote, well-educated, they've come through the Ivy mm-hmm. Leagues. Louis Agassiz's museum is at Harvard. Louis Agassiz's oh, uh, yeah. a- academic legacy was rooted in Harvard. So people have come up through there, right. learning his ideas, believing in the things that he said. That does not mean they're educated. In many instances, it means that they have been right. indoctrinated with the racist ideas right. of the Louis Agassiz of the world. So to educate them right. is something that is not uppermost in my mind. Uppermost in my mind is to liberate them from their indoctrination. How do you do that? Uh, uh, how you do that? It's not with facts and history. I don't think you educate no. the no. bourgeoisie with facts and history. They know some of those facts and history too, and come out with a totally different interpretation of it. I think one of the ways that, th- to Brenda's point, one of the ways that things begin to change is when you assume more ownership of the means of production. To begin to change that system, you have to, in many ways, become part of that system to change it. So that's how you change things. You change things by entering the economic class that owns the means of producing the things that we use in our society. In other words, going from a consumer mentality to a creator mentality. That is the way things are changed. The biggest legacy that most of our people, black people, will leave to their children is a house. And that's important. That helps. It's what you're told to do. Leave a house. That's a very important thing. Totally respect and appreciate it. What the bourgeoisie leave to their children and grandchildren are businesses, are systems, are means of production that go on and on and on and on. The piece that I'm bringing to the table is moving up really into thinking beyond the mindset of a worker to creation, creating something that is yours, however humble that may be. I'm doing that right now with this platform. However humble it is, it's mine and I'm creating it and I'm evolving it. In the absence of that creation, just be aware, brothers and sisters, that you're working. You're trading your labor for a dime or a dollar. 
And so the legacy that you're able to leave with that will be two things. One, it'll be real estate and two, it'll be whatever cold, hard cash you've left in the bank for your posterity. So moving up from one class to the next has everything to do with what you create and what you own. So there's a lot that we have to do to change it in other people. I would suggest starting with yourself, really being clear on why you believe what you believe. Why do I believe this? Why do I believe that black folks are lazy? Why do I believe that our businesses are not as organized as white folks' businesses are? Let's go here. Now, I'm gonna be, I have to be very delicate with how I present this, but anybody who knows me well will be able to piece these pieces together without me having to do it. So just try, brothers and sisters. The way we do each other in business can be very interesting. A lot of these people out here, particularly people in the entertainment business who have the contracts, okay? So they have the TV shows, they have the radio shows, they have the big contracts. They're connected to the plantation, if you will, okay? The bourgeoisie. They're not in the bourgeoisie, but they have contracts with the bourgeoisie, which give the illusion that they're part of it too. You may see them on television, you may read their books, you know, you may see them at the concerts and their furs and all their makeup, and they just look like they're living the life. So we can give the illusion that we're part of this bourgeoisie class. Okay, when you're dealing with some of those black people who got the contracts, whose faces out there, it can be very, very tricky because... And white folks know this. Don't get it twisted. When white folks offer you a contract, when they bring you into the plantation and say, yes, come play on my team, come host my TV show, come write this book, we'll publish it. They know that the accoutrements that come with that are going to change your life. They know that. And because they know that, they got you on a string. And they know they got you on a string. Mm -hmm. That you will, as Grace Jones said, you will slave to the rhythm. They know you would voluntarily, as Jill Nelson said in her book, Volunteer Slavery. They know that if the price is right, you will volunteer to slave to the rhythm. They know that. So when you deal with black folks who got the contract, it can be very tricky because many times, no matter what they say or what they do, their loyalty is to the contract owner, not to you. Even if you're their brother and their sister. Right. Come on, brothers and sisters. We're going to speak the truth up in here today. So dealing with those black folks can be very, very tricky. You see, when you're getting that paycheck like that, you will sell out your brothers and sisters. White folks didn't just march into mm -hmm. Africa and just start stealing motherfuckers. It was black folks. They said, oh, you need 500? You got some cases of rum? We'll take that and give you her, her, and him. Some of us were sold for a case of rum, brothers and sisters. This is what I'm talking mm -hmm. about. Dealing with, so you want to talk about how to get, yep. get to clear up some racism. Let's start with some black folks who are connected to the bourgeoisie class. Mm -hmm. Let's start with them. Let's leave white mm -hmm. folks on the sidebar over here for a minute. And let's just try to clean up our own house for a second. Being mindful that yep. there's some shit we got to deal with with white yep. folks too. You got to mm -hmm. play the game. See, and what they mean when they say play the game is do what I've done. Get in the system. Do it like this to get your paper. See, because paper is the mm -hmm. ultimate thing. Now, some of us, paper yeah. is not the ultimate thing. Does paper change your life? Absolutely. Right. But if you get to a place, brothers and sisters, in your soul, see, and this is the thing about money, it's insatiable. You can never get enough because mm -hmm. once you get a taste of it, That's you can true. never get enough. And they know that you can never get enough. And then your ego becomes attached to it. So you can't walk away from it. And when you find the ones that have their lives in perspective that say, you know what? My family is first. My health is first. I got enough. I got the big house. I done bought my mama the house already. I got three cars in my driveway. I don't mm -hmm. want to do this thing mm -hmm. that you want me to do. I'm not doing it. They look at you mm -hmm. like, what the fuck is wrong with her? What? What's wrong with her? That's right. That's right. Don't she know that this That's is how right. we step and fetch it to keep what we got and to get more? 
dealing with black folks who have the contracts with the bourgeoisie is very tricky. Protect yourself. Protect yourself. And what I've learned to do in my 20 years in the entertainment business, and even my friends will tell you this, Michelle and Dante can testify to this, and sometimes it probably is not pleasant for other people. And it may even come from some of the wounding and the traumas in my own life, but this is how I roll. Any project that I'm working on, or even any friendship that I'm involved in, I have a very healthy attachment to that, to that work, to those people to those relationships, to that project or whatever it is. And I have a healthy detachment from it. Very important. Mm -hmm. I have a healthy, I'm all in when we're there. When I'm working on a project, I'm all in on it. And even people can tell you this when I'm on the set. I'm all in. We got to go to two o'clock in the morning. No problem. But when we're done and it's a wrap and y'all going out to eat, I'm like, no, thank you. I go back to my hotel room, whatever I'm eating or ordering, I get on the way or whatever, and I am have my own time. And I'll see you tomorrow at my call time. I have, I'm have i attached to it, but I'm detached from it. And that's very, very important. So when you're dealing with black folks who got contracts with the bourgeoisie, you have to be very have a healthy boundary about how you deal with those folks. If you just all in it because you're friends and you think because you're friends that this is the way it's going to go because you're friends, you are setting yourself up to be devastated. Self up for major disappointment. Devi- exactly. exactly. Devastated. Exactly. One more example in the entertainment industry. A lot of black talent, what we call talent, the people whose faces you see, they will go and get white representation because they want the white boy. And more specifically, they want the white Jewish boy to represent them. That's what they want. We think that we'll get somewhere with the white Jewish boy represent. I'm just calling it out like it is. All right. This is what it, this is the real, I've seen it with my own eyes too many times. (laughs) Like my daddy and him used to say back in the day, we really did think that the white man's ice was colder than ours, you know? And, and we still think that (laughs) we still think that like we construct that baby. Yep. We can get further along with a white person representing us. And so you'll see a lot of that. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking to the mentality of the black person that chooses them. We really do believe, many of us, in many ways, that we are less than white folks. This is going back to Louis Agassi and Carl Linnaeus and Johann Blumenbach and Samuel George Morton. That was the whole purpose of raising those lives from the dead, is to say that a lot of what they put out there has worked. It has seeped into the consciousness of black folks. And not only do white folks believe it, I ain't even Mm -hmm. talking about white folks. I'm talking about black folks believe that. And all the makeup in the world and clothes and diamonds in the world can't cover that up if you really do believe that. And I'm here to tell you that I've worked with Mm -hmm. several black folks who really do believe that the white man's ice is colder. And in order to get further along in Mm -hmm. this business, they got to be represented by white folks. We tend to get mad at white folks for doing the very things that we haven't perfected yet. So Mm -hmm. they, Michelle, you talk to me about this all the time. They hire each other all the time. They got their network and we get mad about that saying we're locked out. Mm -hmm. And that may be true. We are locked out, but when we get in, we lock each other out. We have not perfected the game that they've been playing. That's on us, brothers and sisters. That's the mentality. That's the mentality. And that's that indoctrinated. Yes. Really? Exactly. Suppressed. Self-hating. Exactly. That's it. That's it. <laughs> That's it right there. And if people don't like the word self-hating, well, well, lack it is self-hatred and appreciating your own. But it is self-hatred. It is self-hatred. And so I'm it here to tell is. you, I have I have had to learn how to protect myself 
against some of the successful black mm-hmm. people in the entertainment business who I've worked with who are not mean people. They're not bad people. But mm-hmm. celebrity is a drug. Celebrity is a drug. Mm-hmm. And they are sucking on that corporate entertainment teat. And our friendship is not mm-hmm. going to change that. They are going to continue to suck. There may be periods when I can, my brilliance and my talent allow me to ride with them. And there are periods when I choose not to. Because there's a certain part of my character and my soul that I'm here to preserve. So I've had to learn how to not be hurt by that, but say, okay, that's how you do it. Gotcha. You've now shown me how you do things. Now I've got to protect myself. See, if I continue to let myself fall into those expectations, that's not who you are. And you've shown me that. No harm, no foul. I get it. So now I protect myself against that. Do you hear what I'm saying, brothers and sisters? These are black folks I'm talking about. This is totally apart from the white folks and all their bullshit that you got to deal with on a day-to-day basis. I'm talking about black people. So having that balance of engaging with and protecting from is very important when you're dealing with other black folks, particularly those who are, are hungry for the bourgeoisie class and who are connected to Mm -hmm. by way Mm -hmm. of contract and obligation to the systems of the bourgeoisie, to the means of production in the bourgeoisie class. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In terms of the roots of race, racial ideas and racial thoughts and racial belief systems are deep and ingrained. And unless you are actively using and developing a higher spiritual system, unless you have God or deity or divinity in your life, Jesus, if you're Christian and Buddha, if you're a Buddhist and Muhammad or Allah, if you're Islam, unless you have something that you are reaching up to, to lift your consciousness to a higher space, you know, you'll stay sucked in that vacuum of racial distinctions. It is a tool and a tactic of the deceptive intelligence of the devil, as Christians would say, of the force of evil in this world to divide and control human beings. That's what it is. It is socially constructed and it is socially maintained by ignorance So if you feed that ignorance, you will be a victim of the cancer that is racism. You know, we'll get into what racism is. We haven't talked about racism. We've talked about racists, racist people. Mm -hmm. We have not talked about racism because black people cannot be racist. Now, I know some of you all don't believe that. But until we're running shit, we can't be racist. We can't stop you from getting a job because you're white. Really? Mm -hmm. All right. We can't. We ain't. Okay. We ain't creating laws. Okay, we're not creating laws. We ain't doing that. Okay, put a pin on that for the for the Yeah, we ain't doing that. So black people cannot be racist. We can be prejudiced. We can prejudge you based upon your skin color. But racism is a system, and black people do not control the levers of power. So I would just say, uplift yourself. Use your religion. Use your God. Use whatever spiritual spiritual system you are involved in to lift you above the cancer of racism. Come on in from your world and listen. He's the same man, same message, same mission. He's channeling the cosmos, all mystic and soul. He's ringing the power and sharing the wisdom that never, never gets old. I'm talking about Robert Wesley Branch. He don't mind taking a chance. Robert Wesley Branch, he's here with his crew. So beware. 
Be well, be encouraged, be inspired every day. Robert Wesley Brandt Show.